Welcome back. This is episode 140 of Herpetological Highlights. I'm Ben Marshall, and co-hosting, as always, is Tom Major. And, whoa, we've got a hefty, hefty complex paper for people this week. <laughs> Don't sound too excited, Ben. Well, it's called a short report. They call it a short report, but the amount of information packed into this paper is kind of outrageous. Yeah, it was a pretty dense one. It was a good one. I liked it for various reasons, which we'll get into shortly. Not least because it's kind of a little bit dinosaur-y, but not, not massively. It's, it's got but hints, it, of, hints of dinosaurs. You know, yeah. kind of reminds us why we got interested in these scaly beasts. At least for me, like the kind of dramatic and stark realisation that if you wanted to research dinosaurs, you had to go digging holes and stuff, kind of uh, led me on to more alive reptiles subsequently which is where the interest in snakes was kind of born but then a, then a weird like shunning of all bird life yeah well because birds aren't nearly as cool as dinosaurs <laughs> are they let's be honest mate i mean very occasionally you look at a bird and you think oh that is a little bit of a dinosaur sort of vibe but by and large they've really let the side down and um i'm probably enraging so many bird enthusiasts oh, birds right, are cool, birds are cool. <laughs> but yeah before we get into the episode this episode is going to be a a little bit late. Sorry about that. Uh, it's because I moved house and the, the sort of host of, you know, trials and tribulations that go along with moving house. I've logistical left Bangor, complications. So, yeah, yeah, lots of logistical complications and just other complications. But yeah, I'm here. I'm back down in my ancestral homeland on the south coast of England. And uh, it's treating me very nicely. It's a bit cold at the moment. But yeah, back down south. Moved in with Maya, my partner's parents, for a bit, which is really nice. So... Yeah, the move's completed and uh, can kind of relax, get back into the podcast vibe. Back on track. That's what we like. Yeah. yeah. So let's get into this paper. It's by Grundler and Roboski, 2021. Rapid increase in snake dietary diversity and complexity following the end Cretaceous mass extinction. Published in PLOS Biology. And this is a patron episode. And this one was suggested by Will Schwartz. And Will Schwartz is or was interested in how it was kind of like how the sort of historical happenings on earth have shaped and influenced the sort of shapes and sizes or behaviors of animals in the present, which is quite a sort of lofty goal of a, of a thing to sort of cover. But Will actually found this paper for us, which is great. So, um, yeah, we, we're duly covering it. And basically, this paper centers around 66 million years ago, which is probably a number that sticks in lots of people's heads. Dinosaurs were kind of running the show on Earth. Not entirely. You know, there were some mammals and there were some snakes and some lizards and things. Some but aquatic really, fish-like creatures, I'm sure, were of course. having a great time. They were flapping about in the swamps and stuff and in the sea. And there was trilobites and all manner of exciting things. But then, yeah, big asteroid comes, gigantic tsunamis, big cloud of dust, insane electrical storms, boiling heat in the local area, rocks falling like hail, and, um, yeah, the extinction of non-avian dinosaurs, which um, was obviously very dramatic. But this, not only was this dramatic if you were a dinosaur, because you'd have found yourself dead, but it was also an event... <laughs> Dramatic's one way of putting it, yeah. <laughs> you, wouldn't be, yeah. you wouldn't find it very much of anything. <laughs> yeah, you'd just be, I guess you just have to accept it. But yeah, this event kind of marked the beginning of this dramatic period of opportunity on Earth. Because if you think all of these big, giant, terrible lizards have been wiped out and suddenly there's all this space and opportunity for other animals to 
sort of arise and become successful. And for that reason, it's often known as the age of the mammals. But actually, it could just as easily be known as the age of the snakes. Yeah, I did appreciate that flipping of the script there. (laughs) I like that. Yeah, they said that in the paper. I thought it was really cool. I was like, the age of snakes. And yeah, basically, like during this period, there was all these kind of functional innovations um, in snakes that we already know about, you know, like they learnt or they began doing different kinds of prey subjugation, so um, different ways of hunting. Also, their skulls became more mobile and had more points of articulation and complex muscles. Yeah, the the argument beforehand is that the previous snake looked more akin to a, what do you call them? Blind snake, Sicilian. Oh, a blind snake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I thought. They- I don't think it's decided. Decided that that's the likely sort of ancestral setup, but that's certainly the best best suggestion right now. Is that they were more akin to blind snakes. Yeah, yeah. They did seem to think there is like a common theory that the first snakes were blind snakes, and they've got quite different skull morphology to uh, the vast majority of. I was going to say modern snakes, but that's a really poor use of the word modern, because we do have modern blind snakes, and they're, of course, as modern as any other snake. Yeah, well, they are now. Yeah, they've survived. Yeah. This paper, what they did was, uh, and also we should mention that, it's not like there weren't any snakes. They were also kind of diverse before. They were doing okay before the dinosaurs went extinct, but really it was like, <laughs> but they after the dinosaurs better. went extinct. Yeah, they could have been doing All better. these dinosaurs taking up all this eco space. <laughs> yeah, but then once they died out, the snakes start popping off. And uh, yeah, they gathered data set on snake diets. So they had like close to, well, just over 34,000 species. No. no, there's not that many snakes. <laughs> they had 34,000 natural history observations yep. for 882 species. So if you've ever thought about writing a little note to a herpetological journal about a snake eating something that you've spotted, this is the kind of thing it can contribute to, which is really, really cool. Yeah. So a lot of that would have been citizen science and stuff. Yeah, shout out. I love these sorts of papers that pull together all this sort of natural history groundwork. And they do highlight it towards the end of the paper of just how valuable on the ground sort of, you know, they look like small, insignificant observations at the time, potentially. But once paired together and, and put into this framework, it's a, it's really, really crazily insightful. You said 800 and, what was it, 800 and something species? Yeah, 882. Yeah, so there's still huge number of snakes that didn't have adequate data to be included in this yeah that's only like less less than a quarter of all the snakes yeah. so there's a long there's way to go species <laughs> yeah so um they use that data set and they kind of Im- implement like a big phylogeny study of the relationships of all these animals and they try and piece together when and how evolving different strategies for eating came about in snakes and so there's quite a few different things that they come out with Principally, snakes first evolved 128 million years ago. That's old news. But they had this ancestral diet when they first arrived. And you said earlier, they think that they were probably like blind snake type things. No, that is actually quite contentious because some people say that actually blind snakes are probably like super derived now and they've actually evolved to change loads. But other people say, oh, now nah, they were blatantly blind snake style. So it's a bit of a mystery. But what we can be pretty sure of is that the first snakes ate mostly bugs. Right. And that they were probably small and weak. And <laughs> <laughs> The bugs or the snakes or both? The snakes. Okay. They were weak. And then it was around 110 million years ago. 
some snakes began to eat lizards. And for millions of years after that, snakes mostly ate just either insects or lizards, and mostly it was insects. And then, post-asteroid, we see this rapid diversification of diet and associated form throughout what is called the Eocene period. And suddenly there's all this rapid diversification to eat all manner of exciting things. So you've got mammals appearing in the diet of snakes, frogs, tadpoles, and eggs, and even frog eggs. I imagine. The tastiest type of egg. It's not going to be mammal eggs, is it? Well, are marsupials within mammals? Isn't it echidna that has eggs, eggs and platypus? Yeah. Do those count mm. as mammal they? eggs, they not? but they're marsupials? But is marsupial within mammal? I'm, I don't... Are they marsupials? Are you sure? I thought they were their own thing. Are they not like a... Isn't echidna not like uh, its own... We're making a horrible, horrible mistake here. <laughs> it's a monotreme, so I don't think it's either. It's like... Oh, I'm it's fine its own, They get their own gang. So, um, yeah, most of these species, though, that are finding themselves eating different things, they're evolving from the snakes, which had become lizard eaters, right? Because if you've got a tiny little pathetic mouth that's meant for eating bugs... It's not really a good <laughs> jumping off point to become an animal which can eat. You have limited other flexibility. Things. Yeah. Yeah. So if you can only eat you social invertebrates like ants and termites, and even then you might have to just pop the heads off them. Yeah. Pretty limited options in terms of lizard consumption from then on. Yeah. Yeah. So their findings kind of highlight some other nice evolutionary tidbits. So, um, Basically, it is actually the case that if, so say you have like a snake which is going around and it's just eating lizards and then suddenly that, like even just a small group of them decide, okay, there's some other prey that's available. It could be, I don't know, let's just use the example of birds. And so basically, if you have a small group of animals which have been eating lizards, but then subsequently start eating birds, that kind of kickstarts this evolutionary process where they start specialising to be more able to eat birds. So like we had that paper a couple of weeks ago, which was about the boas on the islands and um, they essentially began eating birds and then they subsequently became more and more specialized. Their heads changed shape. You know, they've got like teeth that are more pokey outy so they can sort of like grip onto things more easily. They make the point that it's not like, so I think one of the things that people often think is that like, generalist species are more likely to evolve into specialist species because like you're a generalist you can eat lots of different things you're more likely to then find something you like and specialize mm-hmm. but actually yeah. they found here that basically snakes can go from being generalist to specialist and then back and forth and back and forth over yeah. evolutionary time so it's kind of like we had a paper recently where there was oh it was the uh, evolution of the nose horns and things yes. wasn't it on the uh, and they were finding that in them they could basically go from having a nose horn to sort of not having a nose horn and then back again through evolutionary time. And uh, it was a pretty flexible trait. And they think the same is true for diet. You're obviously under a lot of pressure when you're evolving to be able to eat stuff. And if you can't, Mm -hmm. it's pretty much the biggest problem you can have. Right. And they've got some pretty compelling evidence for this, because what you'll have is different species that are essentially specialized into eating a given prey type. But these species all pop up in completely different lineages. So we'll have some elapids that are sort of specialized going for fish. And you'll, okay, there we go. They consume huge numbers of fish and that's what they go for. But you'll similarly get several different fish specialist species popping up in something like, they're not colubrids anyway, what are the natricines like natrix, yeah, I think grass it's snakes. Like subfamily natricinae. Yeah. They are colubrids, I think. Well, that's what everyone seems to say at the moment. Yes. Have they grouped them in with colubrids here? Yes, I suppose they have. They have. Yes. No? Mm. 
No, they've got the super family. Yes, no, they are, they are within. Yes, subfamily. Sorry, subfamily. The point is you will get fish specialists in different lineages that appear completely unconnected. It's not like at one point a generalist snake evolved to be able to do a really good job eating fish and all the different fish-eating snakes are derived from that ancestor. It's, it's much more flexible. Yeah. Yeah, they actually use an example in modern day of... Um a snake which is in the process of kind of changing its diet. And they use the example of a population of Galapagos snakes, Galapagos races they are, which is Pseudalsophis occidentalis. And these are the ones that were featured in the recent BBC oh, documentary. You know, the chased one... down the young iguanas. <laughs> yeah, the ones that were Incredible. like cha- like chaotically chasing down the young iguanas, accidentally eating each other, seemingly teaming up, but actually not teaming up. But maybe teaming up. But yeah. But that species has only just recently, very recently, taken to intertidal foraging on coastal fish. So there's lots of populations of this snake and there's only one that's known to do this. And they basically go down to the rock pools, slither about, go under all the rocks and in the nooks and crannies and like dig fish out from underneath rock crevices. And this is a behavior which is like completely unknown from any other population of this snake. And there's no close relatives of this snake which do the same thing. And that kind of lends like actual real life support to this idea that changes in behavior can frequently bring about a change in the niche that the snake occupies. And then that can sort of kickstart this evolutionary diversity. And yeah, so that species, they are actually a generalist. On BBC Earth, they were hunting iguanas, uh, but they usually eat like smaller lizards, insects and hatchling birds. And they're pretty good. They'll eat introduced rats and mice, which is pretty sweet. But yeah. Going back to uh, the pathetic little worm eaters at the start, <laughs> well, not worm eaters or insect eaters, but it is actually something which is, appears to pop up a lot, evolutionarily speaking. Distantly related snakes seem to kind of keep repeatedly evolving to eat earthworms. And uh, the authors of this paper aren't really sure, like, why they're doing this. They're not sure if it's because it's really easy. To, we talk about this a lot, like, it's easy to get a tube inside another tube, yeah, right? Like, if you're a half snake... Half least resistant sort of idea. Yeah, if you've got a solution that's going to be evolved, it's more likely to occur if it's easy to get there. Exactly. It's like just putting the tube in the tube. Worms make easy prey. They're also really abundant and easy to catch. Like, I don't know if you've ever tried to catch worms, but it's, like, quite easy. They don't really have any defense mechanisms except sort of flapping around that I know of. But, um... Yeah, the only problem with that is once you've evolved to eat worms, you can't really easily go back. So like I said earlier, yeah. you know, a lot of these snakes which are finding new novel diets and are sort of diversifying their uh, niche in evolutionary timescales are snakes which were starting off having a big mouth because they were eating lizards. Well, once you go down, all the way down, to having a tiny mouth that's only good for sucking up worms, it's really quite a specialised thing and it's quite small and... Um, yeah, the authors say that it might be that just once they've evolved to eat worms, they've kind of painted themselves into a bit of an evolutionary corner. And yeah. uh, the only yeah. escape from there is extinction. I mean, so they have a very nice figure, which I like. It's a little bit tricky to get your head around. But um, basically, it's it's showing the uh, relative of importance of different groups of prey in, in different snakes' diets. And essentially, what it's showing is there are certain specializations that once you reach a sort of level that you can consume those things it pretty much precludes you from eating other prey so there's some examples basically there's this big lump where you've got like mammals birds uh lizards other snakes are sort of relatively easy to eat if you can eat one of those you can probably eat another one it's a it's a lot more 
the sort of relative importance is more balanced between snakes that are eating those, so they have that sort of flexibility. But if you start start eating fish, if you start eating annelids, if you start eating mollusks, if you start eating what is number six? Six. It's, okay, so in, they split insects and um, arachnids. I think basically you get locked in, and you have a lot less flexibility when it comes to dietary choices once worms. you've made that specialization. Mm, yeah, yeah. Annelids are worms. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. So that's the case for all of those different things. Like if you start eating small fiddly things, you're becoming specialized. Right. Is it the same for, do you say mollusks as well? Mollusks. Yeah. So you're yeah, slug eating, snail eating snakes, super specialized mm. because of their like asymmetric jaws, I would assume. Yeah. Not that I know if they're the included digging. in this sample or not, but I certainly know that that's a, would be a nice example of something very specialized to mm. a very specific prey type. And they certainly mm. highlight the other sort of invertebrate stuff is to do with needing different venoms or uh, needing to like overcome a particularly venomous prey, like a centipede. You know, you don't go toe-to-toe with a centipede without knowing that you can deal with that centipede sort of thing. Yeah. The other cool thing this sort of showed up is the sort of transition from more easily consumed sort of aquatic prey into fish and stuff. Like there's a macro-ecological sort of environmental thing going on too was the snakes that are sort of more likely to eat frogs and stuff are closer in terms of dietary overlap with those that eat fish or mm, those that so eat salamanders, like which makes perfect sense because they're going to be in similar sort of places. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're aquatic or you're not. Yeah, you're not going to be eating frogs and also eating like tree-dwelling large insects. Like that's just very, very unlikely for one snake to have such a weird dietary breadth. Like, you're going to eat stuff that's close. And the sort of mm. aquatic terrestrial split does appear to be... Well, it's not even a split, it's a gradient. But uh, it does appear yeah. to be there. So, yeah, I mean, that is basically the crux. The long and short of this paper is that they used a bunch of natural history observations that people have made and some complicated modelling, and they really accurately described, or at least went a long way to describing the evolution of, like, complicated morphological and evolutionary strategies in snakes like yeah the dinosaurs went extinct and then you had a little bit of a lag and then there was this burst of diversification in things that they were eating and um yeah it's just really and cool it's really nice yeah like you mentioned before like the re-evolution of all these different solutions and specializations like it's yeah remarkable how sort of flip floppy <laughs> the switching between one specialty or, or not and back to generalist yeah. is and I think now, after reading stuff like this, you look at particular species of snake and you can really start to think about how they are actually adapted for what they're eating. Like if you know what a snake's eating and think about it, it's like, particularly its head, there's usually some clues in there. Snakes are a particularly good group for that because they can't, they have limited prey manipulation options, shall we say that? I still think they shouldn't call it prey handling without hands, but well, it's a matter manipulation for then. It's already solved. <laughs> but yeah, thank you very much, Will Schwartz, for that yeah. topic choice. and Super choice. With that, we've got some more genetic analysis in our Species of the Bi-Week. So this one is by Gute, Reyes Velasco, Cassie and Boissonneau, 2022. Genetic and morphometric analyses of historical type specimens clarify the taxonomy of an Ethiopian Leptopelis gramineus species complex. Published in Zookeys. So we got this frog. It's called 
the burrowing tree frog, which is a bit of a weird one. How can it be a burrowing tree frog? It burrows and it goes in trees, but it's Leptopelis gramineus. And it's this like Afro-Montane species of frog. So you've got the African rift, the big mountains that carve through Africa. And um, frogs of this genus have kind of diversified and become lots of different species in the Ethiopian highlands to occupy forests and sort of like grasslands at high elevations, both east and west of the uh, Great Rift Valley. And um, genetic studies basically in the past revealed that this species, Leptopelis gramineus, the Ethiopian burrowing tree frog, actually is more than one species based on its genetics, morphology and kind of being separate, being distinct. And they were just waiting to be described. And um, yeah, they've discovered some of that divergence here. They've described a brand new species of frog. Well, they actually did two uh, in this paper. Yeah, they did. But are we just going to focus on Shebelensis? Yes, I think that was the plan. Yes. Yeah. It's a lovely little frog. Sort of. Yeah. Only three to five centimetres long. Yes. You're looking confused. Yeah, no, that's right. Yeah. I was just looking for the picture so I can uh, Ah. gaze upon it as you tell me how long it is. Oh, it's a good one. It's oh, a it's a one. superb one. Absolute superb frog. Yeah, I so really like when they have the male and the female like next to each other at scale. So you can see that the, the females are whopping compared to the males. Yeah, so that's all three to five. Three centimetres for the male, five for the female, SVL. That is actually pretty small. They look much bigger. These are some very macro well, images. They've got quite an imposing posture, I think. Quite. They exude strength and confidence. <laughs> They are stacked. I like them. The females are sort of this like nice deep green. They're like a green bell pepper green. It's a yeah, really a rich green. That's a good way of looking at it. And the males are sort of tan with a few stripes on their backs, like indistinct darker stripes and then sort of green sides and legs. But yeah, they look sort of, I would say they're not dissimilar to our common frogs here, really. They're just a bit fatter and a bit shorter. They do look a bit a more bit sort smaller. of rounded. But they're nice, and they've been given a great name. So they've called them Leptobelis shebelensis, which the specific name shebelensis refers to the Shebel River, as the distribution range of the species appears restricted to the river basin, and there's populations either side of that river. So that's a great name. And this frog is another cheeky little hole dweller, isn't it? Loves being in holes. Inhabits grassy meadows of the Dida Plateau and the northern Bale Mountains. Um, mid to high elevation, so actually pretty high, 2,500 to 3,300. So these things, they like it at altitude. Males cool in the dry and rainy seasons, so they're probably breeding multiple times in the year. And um, they don't care about whether it's day or night. They'll cool regardless. <laughs> and for extended periods, it's cooling non-stop. I suppose that is probably aided by their green and sort of tan coloration. Keep them nice and camouflaged. So they yeah. can cool during the day. But yeah, they generally sort of hang around on the banks of streams or side pools and often cool from holes in the ground. There wasn't a picture of the uh, habitat in this one, was there? Which is a bit disappointing. Yeah, I mean, we always appreciate a good uh, a good uh, habitat picture. It really puts you in the place. Yeah, we'll just have to imagine what it's like. But yeah, that's our newest species, Leptobacterium. Leptopelis shebelensis from Ethiopia. So uh, if you think you can have a bash at spelling that, Google it. (laughs) It's a tough one. Have you got any other business for this episode, Ben? Only a quick sort of 
update shout out to the folks that were at uh, ASAP. It's the Animal Behaviour Oh my gosh, the Association something something Animal Behaviour. It was a conference, Edinburgh. Animal Behaviour. Awesome. I wanted to. You went to a conference in Edinburgh about animal behaviour. Yes. Cool. That's what I was trying to say in that mess. But what I wanted to say is there were a trio of awesome lizard studies that we will almost certainly cover at least one of them at some point when they're out and about. We had a wonderful one about tail autonomy and how leaving your tail behind, like differences in tail size and stuff, impact its uh, usefulness. We had one about, I forget the species of lizard, shamefully. It was, it was a Italian lizard, I think, being keen to eat food that wiggles. That was a nice camp, you know, set my mind thinking about the caudal luring stuff we were talking about an episode or so ago. It was a sort of counterpoint to that of lizards being susceptible to wiggliness. And one that was completely out of left field in terms of, like, I just didn't expect it to... I've never thought about it, but it was using Colotes versicolor as a pest mitigation sort of strategy for agricultural crops. And basically showing that these wonderful lizards can ID areas of high pest density and therefore could be sort of leveraged to help deal with uh, common agricultural pests in <laughs> like insects and things. Which I love, because like lizards are forgotten in terms of that sort of ecosystem service a lot of the time. Like they're not it's just a very that's Colotes versicolors, the oriental garden lizard. Some people call it the fence lizard or the yeah, changeable lizard. Super, super widely distributed. Yep. Mm, yep. Really massive wide distribution in Southeast Asia. And like the most common lizard you'll see. Certainly feels like, like it. Yeah. Certainly if you're in like secondary forest, they seem to be everywhere. So are they talking about chucking them out and using them as a biological control? Or are they saying that they could be an indicator of like pest density? Well, the study was sort of behaviorally geared so it was looking at the lizards being able to differentiate between a high prey area and a low prey area without sort of wandering about through both of them you know they were given a choice but a sort of impression i gave was that or or got was that um it was more about communicating to farmers and landowners that these lizards were of benefit and therefore leave them be because they're actually helping out when it comes to agriculture i'm not sure (laughs) <laughs> it wasn't, you know, suggesting grab a bunch of lizards, throw them in your farm, let them... <laughs> there was nothing that proactive. It was more about their behaviour and their ability to differentiate areas. Cool. But it's That's so- cool. Yeah, a couple of those I'd like to look in in much greater detail and uh, certainly certainly podcast options. Cool. It's fun to be at a conference where lizards are being discussed. Dude, it's rare. <laughs> yeah, I'd have been buzzing about that. Like, li- sorry, lizards? <laughs> yeah, no snake stuff, though. So oh, That's weak. So, no, I'm really glad that was fun, though. It's nice. Good. To, it's always good to go to like a proper, proper conference, isn't it? It was. It was real. Yeah. So, I've got a few other bits. we got a new patron. So, thanks very much to Jake Hallam. Thank you. Big up yourself. And of course, this is a patron-selected episode, so if you want to become our Patreon and support the podcast financially, we're extremely grateful. If you feel like it, that's amazing. If you don't, listen for free. That's what it's all about. So, um, <laughs> yes. yeah, that's patreon.com slash herphighlights. And yeah, I just got a couple of correct, well, a couple of things, a correction and an email. I had a correction from myself. I realized after we recorded... The last episode or the episode before, I mentioned that there was a new paper describing a bunch of species from New Caledonia, new geckos, after we did that gecko episode yes. of the genus Bavaya. Yes. And uh, a mass description, right? 
It wasn't as mass as I made out, actually. There were only 28, not 38. I misread it. Okay. So it's still I a mean, lot. still. <laughs> yeah. 28 still a lot species. That is a, that's still a heap of lizards. But I still managed to over-egg it. So it was, 30, it was 28, not 38. I remain impressed, so... Yeah, that's good. So we also had an email from Seb. Seb just said, hey, just listen to your Elapid episode. Great stuff. Cheers, mate. Just a fun fact on the Pobble Bonk that you played the sound of. Yes, so this is that frog. named frog of all time. Yeah. So the genus name Limnodynasties apparently translates to Lord of the Marsh, which is already cool. And then he goes on to say one species, Limnodynasties Terra Reginae, Terre Regine literally means Lord of the Marsh, Queen of the Land. <laughs> what? <laughs> and they're a type of pole bonk. Oh my yeah. god, someone this is but the What did they get as a common that's name phenomenal. if that's what a scientific name means? How on earth do you top that? What do they that, call I think them that's the best name we've ever come across. That's the nor- the northern banjo frog. That's just not good enough. That does not reflect how awesome Northern Dynasties Terre Regine. Terry Regine. That's Lord of the Marsh, Queen of the Land. Phenomenal. Yeah, that's awesome. Thanks, Seb. And yeah, I think... Best Latin name I ever. think... I think that's about it, actually, for this episode. Unless you've got anything else to add. Nope, that's all. All right, great. So yeah, I think all there is to say is that we're all available on social media. Look us up, Herb Highlights, or you can find us personally. And yeah, thank you for listening. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.